happen And the name that makes it happen No further introduction to the man that's worth cracking City's clapping for his relentless backing A vast against the former team that just went packing While they're slacking and other hosts are lacking He tells it like it is on issues that nobody's tackling While he's racking the ones who keep on grappling The listeners some followers who get it keep on stacking Great friend and the type to set a trend President to see where haters with the men there's no pretend 17 years, he along with Pierce Entertaining Southern Cali back by popular demand Intense for the listeners to resonate To the hottest topics of the day, check the resume While some local leaders seem to lack the unity My man uses his voice to do what's best for the community Westwood One, catch him on the sidelines Reporting live, what we later see in highlights No holds barred, just like on his timeline Sun filter podcast, no need to follow guidelines Meet any criteria, dropping bombs like Syria Touching down, all around, connected like Expedia Coming to your speakers live from the city, yo Bestie, welcome to the Scott Kaplan Media Great friends, what is going on? What is good? I hope everything is great About this week's podcast, because... When I started this podcast, I wanted to have Dick Emberg as my first guest. And and we've talked about this before. And then Dick died. And so I have some friends that are some older guys that I've been friends with for a really, really long time. The gentleman who is going to be a guest on today's podcast, is his name is Corky Miser. For those of you that don't live in Southern California, that listen around the country and around the world, you'll, you will never have heard of Corky Miser. You'll have no idea who he is. But hold on. For those of you that do live in Southern California and do listen to my regular radio show on 1090, Corky is Corky from Corky's Pest Control. Now, again, if you're from outside of Southern California or if you don't listen to 1090, you have no idea who I'm talking about. For those of you that do, this is like a famous guy because this guy turned a pest control jingle into a boom and an expansion of his business, which was already hyper successful. I met Corky quite a while ago, probably about 15 years ago, and um, we have been close, close friends for a really long time, and we've seen a lot of crazy shit in, in our relationship, a lot of great highs and some unfortunate, really tragic lows. But through it all, Corky Miser has always remained to me the most interesting man in the world. You hear that phrase all the time. A few weeks ago, somebody said that about the Burger Lounge CEO. They said, he's the most interesting man alive. You've got to interview him. And his employees thought that. Corky Miser, the pest control king of Southern California, I would argue is one of the most interesting people in the entire world. And you're saying to yourself, the guy who owns the pest control company is so damn interesting, huh? And I say, yeah, he really is. You're about to hear that. You're about to hear some of the stories of my friend Corky Miser, who's been a great business mentor to me, a great supporter, a great advocate, a great investor. He has been so many things to me over the years. So I want to, this was a, this was personal for me. This one was really, really personal for me. And I'm I'm glad I'm going to share some of Corky's stories with you coming up in a matter of moments. I want to thank, as always, sponsors to get things kicked off. You understand that these things can't happen if you don't find some form of sponsorship. Because they take a long, long time to, you know, book and interview and produce. And I'm not complaining. You know that. But what I'm saying is I got to thank some people. First, I'll start off with my friends at Callaway Golf. Their website is amazing. Anything related to golf, CallawayGolf.com. Best equipment and best balls and best apparel and, and all kinds of things that you're looking for, all related to the world of golf, 
CallawayGolf.com. You know what I really need to do is I need to talk to my friends at Callaway Golf and say, hey, I'm, I'm pushing Callaway Golf on the podcast. Why don't we do some kind of promo code for people that are podcast listeners that can get a discount? And I'll work on that immediately with all my free time. I also want to thank some other friends that are recently coming to the podcast, and I'm going to be doing some of my podcasts in their place. My friends at the Brigantine Family of Restaurants. Again, if you live in Southern California, specifically San Diego, you know the Brigantine brand. This is the time of year, summertime, where I'm at the Brigantine all the time, specifically in Del Mar. Best fish tacos on the planet. Anybody comes to San Diego and they say, tell me where to go for fish tacos. They say, you go to the Brig and you have the original Brig fish taco. Yes, it's fried. Yes, there's cheese all over it. Yeah, there's ranch dressing too. But it's worth every calorie. And the crunch of every bite of that fried fish is worth every calorie. So the Brigantine family of restaurants, my close friend Tyler Martin, who works for that company and has been a great supporter, thank you, Brigantine. And as always, again, Gorilla Movers. Great moving company, insured, professional. You're moving in town, out of town. You're moving cross country. You're just moving your office. You're moving your house. These are my go-to guys, and unfortunately, I've had to move a couple of times in the last couple of years. So there you have it. There's some sponsors, Callaway Golf, the Brigantine family of restaurants, Gorilla Movers. Thank you, thank you, and thank you. Corky Miser, I'm telling you, I know, he's the pest control guy with the funny commercials. But for me, he's so much more in my life, in my business, and I want to share this with all of my great friends, the great Corky Miser on the Scott Kaplan Solo Podcast. All right, Cork, we're recording. Just starts just like that. Hello there, just like that. Corky, first of all, my goodness, it, it's hard for you and me to get together. What, what, are, what are you? You're so busy. Well, I'm busy, but trust me, buddy, you're busy too. Tell <laughs> which way it goes. Yes. Well, it's my busy season right now. So, um, people who listen to my podcast, Cork, you know, I started this podcast because. Well, I, let me start from the very beginning. You remember last year when when it was Breeders' Cup here in San Diego, and we had that event for Dick Emberg. Yes, so right around that time dick was doing a lot of podcasting in fact that night at the event I was giving dick kind of a hard time that He's podcasting although he has no idea how to download a podcast how to how to listen to a podcast <laughs> Yeah, no idea. Yep. But, but I was I knew then that in November of last year that I needed my own podcast How could dick emberg at 80 something years old have a podcast something cool and modern and I don't something's wrong with that so I actually intended to have Dick as my first guest on the podcast. Wow. And then, you know what happened in December? Mm-hmm. Yes. Died. Right. So, Cork, I talked a few weeks ago during Father's Day. This is maybe a couple of months ago now. Huh. I did a podcast with my father and my son. It was the first time the three of us had ever been together for Father's Day. Wow, that's really cool. And on the radio now, podcast. Yeah, and, and people really got into it. I didn't know if it was going to be super self-serving and nobody would listen, but people did. They got into it. And what I, what I said at the beginning of that podcast was that I had a friend, a gentleman named Kelly Michaels, who you knew well, obviously. And I, I, I told the story of how Kelly wrote a coffee table book for his family <laughs> true. to tell those stories of, right. and, and what he wanted to pass on to his kids. Pearls for my children. That was the name of the book, right? Right. And, and I didn't get the chance to talk to Dick before he died about this. I didn't get the chance to do this. And... Your voice is so distinct. Your storytelling, your storytelling style is so distinct. <laughs> you may decide to write a book, Cork, but I said we got to do this on tape because I figure that 
all of the people who work for Corky's Pest Control, all of the radio listeners who for years have heard your voice on the radio, they have no idea what I know about you. <laughs> and I hope that uh, maybe we can tell some of those stories today. Yeah, I'm a ghost, huh? <laughs> <laughs> people don't know very much about me. And uh, I, have, I have lots of stuff I've done in my life. Well, listen, my life changed a lot because um, in, I want to say, about 2003, early 2003 or four, somewhere in that neighborhood, Right. Um, that's when I met you. Right. And the very first conversation that you and I had is what this podcast has turned into. It morphed into it. It just wow. sort of happened. Because if you recall, you and I were having dinner in New York City. Yes. We were on a radio station trip to go see the Padres play the Yankees. What's the name of that restaurant? It starts with an M. Wow, was that a great restaurant or not? It's like one of the most wow. classic New York yes. res Italian restaurants. Yes. You can't get into the right. place. Right. And we were there, and we were having a great time, and I was just grilling you, not like intentionally. I didn't realize it. <laughs> <laughs> I was grilling you, because you and I got set, we got seated next to each other, about business and success and your life and how you got there. And I've always been fascinated by people's stories. And now this podcast, which again, I, I started this, Corky, as a um, a way to promote my startup company, Sire. Uh -huh, right. I, I expected this that this would become a sports related podcast, and but what's happened is um, it's become a business inspiration podcast. Wow. Yeah. And I, as a first time CEO of a company, have learned so much, and have been able to share all of my own learnings with so many other people that listen that are also in business that that are getting so much from this and i think people are going to learn a lot today <laughs> well, i don't know we'll see <laughs> so so cork um when i think about you um i think about one thing you told me early on which was you know you grew up in this small town in michigan yes and as a young kid you already had this entrepreneurial spirit i didn't know that of course not <laughs> but this line that you told me that and I, maybe I'm misquoting it, but by the time I was 12 years old, I was already making more money than my father. Yeah, that's pretty crazy, isn't it? Tell me about that. Well, I, there was a strawberry field that was up the hill and across the street from where we lived, and so you know, I mean, what I I always was trying to make money. You know, I mean, you always had to do that when you were a kid. So they paid us a nickel a quart to pick the strawberries, or we could pay him a nickel a quart and keep the strawberries. So I. He paid me a nickel a quart for a while. I couldn't make very much money doing that. So I realized that if I paid him a nickel a quart, that I could go down the street and sell them for a quarter, and I'd make a lot more money doing that. So I started, uh, you know, taking my wagon and picking the strawberries and putting them in the back of my wagon and taking them down the street, knocking on the doors and saying, hey, you want to buy some strawberries? <laughs> so I sold them for a quarter piece or five quarts for a dollar. And uh, I couldn't sell, I mean, I couldn't pick enough to really do that. So I had to hire people to come and pick the strawberries for me so that I could go down the street and knock <laughs> out the doors and sell them. And, and I realized that I could sell more strawberries that not only I could pick, but it, I could hire four people to pick strawberries for three or four hours and then I could still sell them all the same day. So 
Yes, yeah, so I was uh, I was making about three hundred and fifty dollars a week, and my father was making three hundred and fifteen dollars a week working for Kellogg cereals at the time, which was really big money. But of course, I only made that money during strawberry season. I mean, you know, I mean, but but it was really terrific to go and say, "Well, Dad, I made more money than you did this week." I mean, that didn't go over very well. You can imagine. And what? what just how old do you think you were? I think I was 11 when I started doing that. It was nine when I, uh, eight, eight years old, I started doing the newspapers, and nine, I did some other things, and, you know, and then I sold the strawberries, and then I graduated into selling jewelry that I could get from the jewelry companies, and then I could sell them. And the biggest one was uh, automatic needle threaders, uh, you know, a little plastic <laughs> thing that cost me 50 cents that I sold for $2, I think it was, or something like that. And so in my yearbook, when I was a senior, it said that 10 years at the 10-year reunion, we come back, Corky will have made a million dollars selling automatic needle threaders. (laughs) (laughs) What year was that? I graduated in 1959. 1959. Yeah. And, you know, when you say these things and people will hear this, they're going to say, wait a second, a nickel? A quarter, yeah, right. a dollar, yeah, three hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, I mean that sounds like that was real money back in the. Do you know how 50s. much I had to work my butt off to make three hundred and fifty dollars selling things for a quarter? I'm telling you, I can only imagine. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know it's crazy. Yeah, right. So, so you as a young kid, you just found a way to make money. I mean. You know, well, it wasn't after the money. You know, the fact is, is that's not really what you're after. You're not really after the money. You know, you just find something you can do and then suddenly become successful at it. Well, success breeds enthusiasm and then you just can't stop. I mean, you know, can't sleep. You can't do anything. You got to, I mean, all you think about is I got to get more and more and more. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, so when you graduated from high school in the late 50s, you said? Uh, 59. Yeah. Um, what was going on as you think back to that time? What was going on in the world? You're 18 years old. You're graduating from high school, small town yeah, Michigan. Well, dad, what did your dad do, by the way, for Kellogg's? What was he his... was a mill repairman? He used to when the machinery broke down, he used to fix it. Gotcha. You know, so then I went to work for General Motors, and it uh, in that amount of time, I uh, General uh, Motors near. Don't I mean, not phone, General, by the I, way. I went to work for Kellogg cereals. I mean. Oh, you did. And so what happened was is that. Uh, I was pushing shredded wheat biscuits through the cornflake area, and he got hit with a tractor on the side of my wagon and knocked it down, shut the bottom floor down for the whole day. I They weren't really happy with me. <laughs> <laughs> so so they warned me, of course, and then I did it again. And so after the second time, they, thought, they figured it was never going to come back. So, But I was like every other kid. I mean, I was uh, in love with every girl that I met. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, that's really how the world goes around. And uh, I wasn't any different than anybody else. So you got you got married really young, right? Yes, um, I had my son David when I was 19, and uh, then two years later, had a daughter, and uh, then when I was 22, I moved to California, and that's where my life really started when I came to California, because in Michigan, I was a farmer, and that's about all you do back there. I mean, you know, I didn't really have any opportunity except working for Kellogg Cereals. I knew that when I was, I mean, when I was 12, I knew I no matter what, I might be able to get a job at Kellogg Cereals, but I wasn't working for the company store. I could guarantee I knew better than that. 
So Why California uh, back then? Well, I had an uncle out here that lived in San Leandro, and I like him a lot. And so uh, came out to – he had kept intriguing me to come, and so I came out to – California and stayed at his house for about three weeks until I got a job and rented the house across the street and uh, so it just kept going every ever since then. You were 22. You had two kids. Mm-hmm. Did everybody come? Your 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 wife and your two oh, kids. Oh sure, I I had a uh, 55 Buick that I took the back seat out of and put a crib bed on the floor and threw my two kids on the floor and everything else that I owned in the trunk and I think. I think I might have had $500 in my pocket when I drove out of my driveway. Leaving for California. Yep, yep. That was probably a lot more, though, than, you know, the guys coming out of Oklahoma had in their pockets, so I guess I felt pretty rich. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. you, you get out here, and, you know, you said you lived with your uncle, and then you rented the house across the street because you got a job. What would you do? Well, I actually, I, I put I put an application. I had 17 different places that I put applications in, and all 17 people called me to work. It was really kind of funny. And uh, so I had taken a job, uh, you know, back then you filled up people's gas tank at a gas station, mm-hmm. you know, and washed their windows yeah, while you were doing Gas station attendant, I was there. Yeah, so I did that uh, for about two weeks, and General Motors called me to work on the assembly line because I had worked for Eaton's for a couple of weeks or months or What's so. What's that? What's Eaton's? Eaton Manufacturing oh. was a place that made car parts back in uh, Michigan for General Motors products. So uh, when I came out here, because I had assembly experience general motors hired me and so i went to work for general motors and then they gave me the uh test to become a uh foreman and so i took that test and i passed it pretty well and so they sent me to gmi which they had a little gmi school general motors institute school in san leandro and so they sent me excuse me to cmi and i went there for a few weeks so here i was uh i think i was 23 years old at the time and I went to work uh, for GM, and they were working lots of overtime. And there I was, making about uh, $46,000 a year back in 1967 by then. And I'd made it for a lot of years before that, because I went to work for them, I think, in 63 or 64. And uh, making 47000 do you know how rich you are if you make $47,000 a year in 1967? I, I mean, mean, it sounds like a lot of money back wow. then. It was a fortune, man. I'll tell you what. Were you, I, were you I, still I, married at this happen. point? Are you? No, I. You know, we had broken up. You know, my my ex-wife was a fun. My ex-wife was a fun person, and she had fun with other people more than she had fun with me sometimes. So. <laughs> we can laugh about that now. Yeah, yeah. right. I kept catching her yeah. having fun. So. <laughs> so, so now you're you're a single guy. You're making forty seven thousand dollars a year. You think you're rich? Yep. Working for General Motors, driving a Corvette, man. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah, looking cool too back then, huh? But you know, see, I grew up on a farm. <laughs> yeah, you know, and yeah, I was skinny like you. You know, <laughs> uh, I grew up on a farm. You know, and so growing up on a farm. Uh, you don't wear a tie, and General Motors made me wear a tie to work every single day. You know, it was it was like putting a hangman's noose around my neck. I just couldn't do it. So uh, I was talking to people about pest control all the time because I had friends that were in the pest control business. Kind of funny. Half of my friends were cops, and the other half were pest control people. You know. So as I talked to uh, the people in pest control, I kept 
they kept saying this is what happened today and i kept saying no nah, you, you got that bug all wrong and i'd have to go get my books on you know show up we were playing poker on friday nights usually so anyway uh they talked me into go down and taking the test for you know getting a pest control license and i went and did it and then suddenly i had this pest control license and i was working for general motors and i had just gotten married for the second time and uh, I thought, what am I doing working here? I don't like it. I mean, General Motors was great. Don't get me wrong. I mean, man, I learned so much working for that company. It was unbelievable. Great company. But so uh, I quit and started pest control and went out and I used to sell vacuum cleaners a little in Michigan. So I went out and knocked on doors and said, hi, I'm from Corky's Pest Control. No way. Well, I knew that Corky was a name that everybody remembered because nobody ever forgot my name in my whole life. So, (laughs) so I knew they remembered Corky. So I named the company Corky's of course, you know, and so I went down the street doing that. And, and, uh, did you have any, you're, you're married now again, Mm -hmm. you got two kids from a previous marriage. Mm You were making forty-seven grand a year, which you said was big money back in the late sixties. Right. Were you financially worried at all that by leaving the security of the job with the big company to start your own company that that you would you would have a hard time, or that you know you could find yourself in financial trouble? Whereas you have the security of the big company and the paycheck. Did you have that fear? What a great question! Really, no. Uh, I don't know why. I can't tell you why. I just never had a doubt. I mean, I knew that I was uh, going to be successful. There was, I mean, never had failed at anything, you know, and so I just knew I was going to be successful, you know, and so I just started at it. I, you know, I had a lot of failures since then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Marriage is number one, but because uh, that didn't last, number two is gone, you know, and so, uh, no, I didn't have, I, I didn't, didn't have, any, have any fear about that at all. I knew that I was going to make it and... But, you know, when I was going to elementary school, because I was always out mowing lawns and shoveling snow and making money, I was always the guy down at the store buying the five packs of Wrigley's gum, you know. So I was always giving the gum. I was the guy that was giving the gum out, you know. I mean, it used to be a nickel a pack, so it was a penny for a stick of gum, you know. And I used to give the gum to all the girls, you know. <laughs> you know? I mean, the guy's got a few too, but... mainly it was the girls (laughs) cork one of my favorite corky stories um as we're hearing more about how you kind of got to the pest control world and look maybe pest control isn't so interesting to most people but it's just the business it doesn't really matter what business it is no um you told me a great story um, because you're you're now in the late 60s you're talking about and and i don't know exactly what year it was but I, i love this story you, you pretty much, the way I recall the story was you, you'd reached some hard times financially. And the story, again, maybe I'm misquoting it, but tell me if I am, that you had a credit card to go buy a steak, <laughs> but not enough cash in your pocket to go buy a hamburger. Yeah, so the truth was is I couldn't go to the to a store like a grocery store or something you know they didn't have very many credit cards back in those days. I mean, it's not like you had MasterCard and Visa, you know, you didn't have those. And so what I what I could do is I couldn't go uh, to a grocery store and buy anything, but I could go to a nice restaurant that took credit cards and buy a steak. It was just that I couldn't go into a coffee shop and buy a sandwich. <laughs> you know, coffee shops did not take credit cards back then. But what was going on in your life at that time? Here you are, a guy who's, as a kid, you knew how to make money. You've got a good corporate-type job. What was going on in your life that that all of a sudden you've got credit cards but no cash? 
Well, that's actually after I was in the pest control business, and I had like uh, had like ten offices, and so I had to sell off some of the percentages of those offices in order to. I had gone into the import export business, and uh, was bringing in farm machinery and pest control equipment from Japan, and so I took a uh, sixty thousand dollar letter of credit from Bank of Tokyo, and brought in a whole shipment of supplies, and I had a thing that was. It was called Woody's Chemicals and Scientific Equipment Incorporated. <laughs> <laughs> nice short name. <laughs> yeah, I had a partner named Woody, so I was the finance guy. Yeah, Woody and Corky. So, anyway, uh, September fifteenth, nineteen seventy-one. Uh, I think it was September fifteenth. Uh, President Nixon came on TV, floated the dollar to the foreign market, put a 10% surcharge on imports, and it was the night that I was going home listening to the radio, his speech, and, I mean, I was, like, bankrupt the next day. I mean, nobody was going to buy anything from me from Japan, even though I had all of this wonderful stuff. So uh, I had to sell it off for 10 cents on a dollar, and I had a hell of a time. I mean, it took me five years to pay back uh, Wells Fargo Bank and the Bank of Tokyo. I did it all without claiming bankruptcy, but, but it was a real hardship to do that. And so I never had, I mean, every bit of cash was going back to paying back the debt and all that stuff. So I had this Diners Club credit card. It was the only thing that I had. Diners Club. Diners Club. I can see the so, TV commercials with yeah. Telly Savalas. Yeah. Kojak. That's right. That's right. You know, yeah. Players Club, baby. Yeah, that's yeah. right, man. So, so, so I could actually go, I mean, I could buy, hell, I could buy a banquet, you know. <laughs> but, but I couldn't buy a sandwich, you know what I mean? So I, there was no way. I didn't have any cash. I couldn't go do anything. So, yeah, that's really funny story. I've forgotten all about that. What yeah. about what about fear at that time in your life? What about financial fear when you're when you're in debt? But I, it was just money. I mean, you was going to be able to get out from under the money. You know, I mean, the fact is, is you just go down the street and knock on doors and you sell the money. You know, I mean, what you had to learn to do is you had to do the right service for the money. I mean, that's where I really became successful because most of the time it was money exchange. But I think it was probably in in 74 75 that i realized that uh you have to do the perfect service so that people love you so that they have you back regularly and i even though i'd always put the regular customers on and done that thing honestly i really didn't understand what i really was about i mean i really was always the perfect person to do the stuff because i understood the biology and the stuff you know, the insects and the different times of year and all that. But I didn't put it together as far as really building a job so that I could do Southern California the right way. And then it took me probably three or four or five years after that to develop a real service that says, you know, hey, if you live in Southern California, I'm the guy. I mean, you know, I can do your service for you and really take care of your home so that you're doing the right thing all you're, the time. You're saying, though, again, just back to business. It doesn't matter okay. if it's pest control. Three right. weeks ago, Cork, right. I had on the, the CEO of Burger Lounge, uh -huh. and here's what he said to me. He said, my goal is to make sure that every time somebody comes into a Burger Lounge restaurant, which started with one store in La Jolla and now has like 30 throughout Southern California, including all the posh spots you'd want to be in in Beverly Hills and L.A. and every place else, he said, I want people to come into the store. I want them to have a great meal. 
I want them to feel like they got value. I want them to put have a smile on their face. You know, I'm not necessarily quoting exactly. He was, and when they leave, I want them to feel like their money was was well used. They got what they wanted. They got more, and they're going to come back. And you know, for me as a first time CEO with a company. I feel the exact same way about my platform, the same way you feel about your pest control Absolutely. Business. It's like when people come onto my platform, I want them to have a great time. I want them to have fun. I want them to say, that was fun. I'm enjoying myself. I feel like I'm getting something for my time, and I'm going to come back. And it sounds like you had a, a moment in your business where you went from, I'm really good at all the biology and all the bug stuff, but now I'm really good at the customer service stuff. Yes, and the thing is, is every little teeny detail matters. And so you've got to take care of every little detail because if you don't take care of every little detail, one of those details will suck all the energy out of everything else. So that's what's difficult is to, is to build a business on every little detail and every, every single thing going back. It's like a customer is dissatisfied. Giving them back, I, I give back, you know, my deal is, is I give back their money. Somebody doesn't like my service, here's your money back. But that doesn't really solve the problem. I mean, you can give people the money back, but so they got their money back, they still tell everybody, you know, don't go there, they're really crap. They gave me my money back, but, I mean, it's like going to a restaurant and saying the food's terrible, and then you keep going back. <laughs> you know, you know, they give it to you free. Well, I don't care. If I don't like the food, free isn't going to help me. You know, what I mean? <laughs> you know uh, so, well, so it, you have to take care of every little detail because otherwise you be, can become unpopular really quickly, you know. Cork, tell me the story because this, I always tell people, I'm like, you don't understand. My friend Corky um, has not only been a great business mentor to me and a you know, father figure, a brother figure to me, but he's got the craziest stories you've ever heard. Cork, <laughs> tell me the story about mining for gold. Oh, God, that's a good one. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me about martial arts or Africa or South America, you know? <laughs> well, mining for gold. Well, you know, I, I tell you what, I just got, you know, every once in a while you can have, if you're running employees and doing this stuff, you can just have so many of them beat up on you as far as mentally until you got to take a vacation and go do something. And so I had uh, like 10 offices and they were running pretty good at the time, I thought. And I thought, let me just take off a year and what I'll do is I, I need to go up uh, to Reno, and I like playing blackjack, so let me go to blackjack school, you know, <laughs> and I'll go up and I'll, I'll learn how to play blackjack uh, in Reno and go to school. And so I, I went up and I got a place to live, and, and there was this product called DMSO, dimethyl sulfosphate, you know. And it, uh, you could put it on your hands and it would cure arthritis or at least make the arthritis go away. So I went up there and started a mail order business doing DMSO. And You left the pest control business well, behind. I, I left people running my right, pest control right, business. To go start behind. another business? Well, I had to have do. I mean, I really went up there to learn how to play blackjack and kind of take a mental vacation. Mm -hmm. But then I ran into this DMSO stuff and so I started a mail order business up there. You know, you, you never do well at any other business. If, if your whole thing is pest control, then you ought to stay at it, you know. Well, DMSO, by the way, as I'm hearing you say that, I mean, I, I know that became some kind of a popular steroid kind of thing eventually yeah. for, like, football players. And I, I want to say I've even heard it around the horse business. Oh, I mean, yeah, you have. The only thing is, is if you take it, it makes your breath smell so badly you can't walk <laughs> into a restaurant. You know? There's no girls come around you when you're doing that stuff, man. <laughs> well, anyway, so... Uh, 
I'm so learning you go how to, to Reno. So I so I run into this guy who's gold mining, you know. And he's gold mining uh, for the guy that owns all the property that uh, Caesar's Palace is on in South Shore Lake Tahoe. And uh, he's got a huge ranch, and he's got a whole bunch of, of uh, malls all over Nevada, you know. And so we go out to his ranch, and we said, hey, you know, we want a gold mine on the ranch. And uh, he said, okay, you can have the mineral rights. I own them all. You find anything, you can have everything you find. I'll give it all to you, but you got to do something for me. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, I'll give you a couple horses. I'll do whatever you want to do. But uh, there's a lot of people who keep rustling my cattle, and they, they don't just go out there and steal the cow. They go out there and shoot the cow, and then they cut it up, and they cut a quarter out of it, and they'll take a hind leg and put it in their car and drive away and leave the rest of the cow there you know and he says i'm telling you just so you have to ride that part and make sure you keep the rustlers out of my away from my cattle and then you can go do whatever you want so you know we went back there and camped out and did all of that stuff and mined for gold and i uh, think i filed eight gold mine claims back there and had the assays done at uh, university of uh, nevada reno and that was actually, the reason why I did it is because Reno uh, was at that time the uh, mining college for the whole country. And so all the professors and all the people that knew anything about it. So I took a whole bunch of samples in and got with the professor and we became friendly and he, you know, did all of the assays on him and everything. And what does so, that mean though? Well, he could tell you how much gold you have there. Gotcha. You know. Did you ever make a big score? Well, yeah, I did, uh, but I didn't get any money for it. I mean, I, I, I found all the gold, and we sent it off. And Houston Oil was a company at that time that was actually doing gold mines. But at that time, I had to come up with a million dollars. The first million I had to put up, and then they would put up the rest. And they said that there was about, you know, $100 million worth of gold there, and I could have 10% of it you know, when they mined it. But Nevada just absolutely put a squash in it. You know, they <laughs> they uh, changed the whole thing to wilderness territory, so you couldn't take any machinery in there. That was the first thing they did. And then the second thing they did is that uh, they showed where they were going to put a dam up there and that we they were going to fill that whole valley up, make it a backwater to a dam, and so... So there goes the gold. Yeah, well, the gold's still there. It's just underwater. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever encounter any rustlers that were there to try and shoot a, uh, well, a cow? Sure, they saw me and took off, you know, because, you know, I mean, I was riding a horse with a rifle in it. And, yeah, I mean, you're, uh, so you're, building, you're, you're me. building a picture right now, Cork. I mean, yeah. I see you at dusk yeah. on a big horse with a cowboy hat and a yeah. rifle in your hand and like a long trench coat. I mean... Is that that's what, pretty close? Were you the sheriff yeah, out there? But, yeah, kind of. You know, the thing is, is you had, but you had it. You didn't smell like one because the only place you could take a bath is they had all these self sulfur springs around there. You know, so you could go take a bath in the sulfur springs, but then you smelled like sulfur too. <laughs> so the the thing that drove me back though is that there was a uh, there was a cabin on the property, and I had a sleeping bag, and I'd been sleeping outside, and I thought I want to sleep inside for a couple of nights. So I went back there and I uh, had a key to the cabin. So I get in the cabin, nice fireplace, built a nice fire in there, put a little fire in there. It was a wood-fired stove, you know, put a little fire in there. I thought I'd cook me a little bit of food, warm up the beans, in other words. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I was, I got it, the fire was going. I laid down in the sleeping bag and I look up 
I, I'm looking up at the wall, and it looked like the wall was kind of moving a little bit, you know. I'm thinking, God, you know, it's my eyes or something. I'm about to go to sleep. So I get up there, and the wall, it was bed bugs that was coming down the wall, you know. It was, uh, and they were coming down for me. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I got out of there so fast. So sleeping outside was wonderful after that, you know. But I so I got out of there really fast. But uh, I couldn't uh, couldn't get those bed bugs and all that stuff out of my mind. There was a lot of bed bugs back in those days, even though I think those were, you know, in there for the birds more than anything else. But so you 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 were mining gold. You right. were learning to play blackjack. How was that going, by the way? How was the blackjack thing? Well, you know, way? I've actually. My spare life of going on vacations, uh, at least three or four times or five times a year, I was going to Nevada. And uh, I can tell you for sure that uh, I, because I, the casinos don't owe me any money. I'm telling you they don't. Only casino that ever has beat me at all, well, the, the one was in Barbados, because uh, I played blackjack all over the world, and I haven't won a lot of money. I mean, I'm not telling you that I got rich playing blackjack, but I'll tell you what I did is that, uh, and sometimes I would, if I was $2 ahead and I didn't think I was going to stay that way, sometimes I would leave right then and there, you know. <laughs> but uh, I've done very well playing blackjack over the years. Well, you, you again, I, I <laughs> when I tell people about my friend Corky, they go, you mean the guy, the pest control guy? I go, yeah, but there's so much more to Corky. <laughs> Cork, you had given me a, a book that you had written. I know you've written many yes. books. Uh, most of them, I suppose, are, are kind of textbooks related to pest control. pest control world. Yeah. But you did write a book about blackjack. how to play blackjack. Yes. And I don't have it all committed to memory. But <laughs> when I sit down at a blackjack table, I definitely have a game plan Whereas otherwise, I'm just sitting down giving the casino my money. Well, and I, and I imagine, I mean, the thing about the blackjack book, and hopefully with you, is that uh, you can, you should be able to win. If you sit down five times, you ought to be able to win three of them, and then two of them pay off the loss of the two of them, and the, the fifth one you take home. And so you can go and have terrific vacations and never pay for them. That was the whole thing. You know, to take home money, I never tried to, well, I figured out you cannot play blackjack and make money in to pay your bills. And the reason why is your bills keep going up. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could make $500 a week playing blackjack. I figured, okay, well, pretty soon my bills were $1,000 a week. So then I had to make $1,000 a week play blackjack. And then I realized that they were going to go to 2000 to 5000 to 10000 because, and pretty soon you can't win enough. You know what I mean? And now you lose. But what so bills you are can you never, talking about? You are talking about being be. a professional blackjack player? Well, that's what I tried to be, so of course, yeah. So the thing is, is that what I'm saying is, is the more professional you get, the more money you spend. <laughs> and the more money you spend, the more you're playing for, and the more you're playing for, the sooner or later they take your money. You know what I mean? So if you play the game of, hey, I'm up here having a good time, and I'm going to come five times, and I'm going to win three, lose two, and at the end of the year, I'm going to break even, but I'm going to get my hotel rooms and I'm going to go to some shows and I'm going to have some dinners and I'm going to have a great vacation and then I'm going to go back and be in a business where I make money. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. So what, when you do that, for people who are listening and they go, well, I don't really understand what you're talking about, Corky. If I go sit at a blackjack table in Vegas and I put down $300, I don't get shows and I don't get, I don't get meals. So you, you have to, can you explain, what is it? Do you set up a line of credit before you go? I mean, what kind of, what kind of money were we talking about? Well, back then, of mm-hmm. course, everything was cash, and you thought you had to hide from everybody, so you wasn't setting up any line of credit. You didn't want them to know who you were. And fact is, uh, I, I got expelled from Caesars because they said I was a professional player and they wouldn't allow me to play there anymore. And uh, so they you know, you know, wouldn't let me play it. And it was really a fun thing to go through. At the time, it was scary as hell. <laughs> but uh, you mean them not letting Caesars, you, yeah. them kicking you out of their casino was a fun thing? Well, it is fun looking back on. <laughs> but at the time, it scared the living crap out of me, you know, because <laughs> guy walked up to the table, put his arm over the table, and said, "This table's closed." And uh, so there were like five of us at the table, and everybody else got up, and he said, uh, you know, I mean, I, I had my money on the table, and there was two great big huge guys that came up and stood behind me and kind of leaned into me, you know, I mean, these guys were, I mean, they probably linemen for the, <laughs> you know, Raiders or something, you know, I mean, so, and I said, uh, closed, and so the guy said yes, and I said, wow, how come, and he said, you know why, and I said, no, I don't know why. He said, yes, you do. He said, you see that girl over there sitting behind that closed window? And I said, yes. He said, take your money, go over there and cash out. And I want you to know you can come in Caesars anytime you want to. You can play anything that you want to in this house, but you'll never play blackjack here again. Do you understand? And I said, no. And he said, yes, you do. He said, I want to hear you say you understand. And I said, and these guys leaned a little harder into me, you know. And I said, yeah, I understand. And I <laughs> got up and took my money and <laughs> went over and I cashed it. You know, $1,700. I mean, that's all I won that day was $1,700. I mean, you know. And what I were got they accusing you of? Counting cards. Were you? No. I mean, well, I can count cards. Okay, yes, I can count cards. I can count. I don't care how many. You can six decks. It doesn't make any difference. I mean, it's it's a pretty simple matter to count cards. But the problem with counting cards is, is it takes so much mental energy that when I used to try to count cards, and I would count cards, but it was I was so tired that I had to go up and take a nap or something because oh my god, you use your brain that hard to count all the cards and then figure the percentages and do all of that stuff. You can't do it you know so when you're counting cards in in blackjack Mm -hmm. are you counting every card like are you hey how many aces how many kings how many queens or or is it are you mostly looking for like sixes and fives things that can get you to 11 or 21 or it's a simple plus minus system i mean you know like computer i mean actually so uh a two three four five six is a plus one and a seven eight nine is neutral no count and a 10-jack, queen, king, ace is a minus one. So when you go through, you just keep track of the plus ones and minus ones until you say, okay, the count is plus 15. And if you ever get to a count of plus 15, then you raise the bet to a hell of a lot more money. Okay, so, and you can raise it going up. And then there's some other things too. I mean, like fives, and you keep tracks of aces and fives. If the aces are gone from the deck, then you have less opportunity to win because you can't get a blackjack and you get time paid time and and one and a half times for a blackjack but when you lose to a blackjack it's only one time so i mean there's the the other side of it and if the fives when you got a 16 if the fives are gone out of the deck you're not going to hit a 16 because you can't beat a a 10 right Mm -hmm. so uh 
those are all little subtle things that you can keep track of. So you keep track of the fives, you keep track of the aces, and you keep track of the count. Now, do you get down into the other things? Yeah, you can, but there's no reason to keep track of one-eyed jacks. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it makes no sense. So uh, uh, if you just count cards and keep track of the cards, but I never, I mean, even though I could do it, I couldn't play blackjack for very long and do it because I was just so damn tired. I mean, I really was. It just really took all my brain power, so I'm just not smart enough to continue to do that. <laughs> but what I did is I developed a betting system. And my betting system that I developed was as the count, as, as you won, you bet more money when you won and you, you went back to zero when you lost. And the defense is, is you play twice when you lost until you win twice and then you double your bets up again. So if you play that game, you can, you automatically follow the count because usually when the count is positive, you're winning and when it's negative, you're losing. Now that's not true, of course, all the time because, you know, I could get the last five in a deck if there was only one left and I hit a 16 into a 10 when I didn't know it anymore because I wasn't counting cards, okay? So at any rate, I was not counting cards that night when I got knocked out of. <laughs> but I know I figured out later in life. Yeah. I later in life I met the guy from the movie, you know, Twenty One, that got kicked out. And you know they got kicked out of Caesar's Tahoe too. And when I put the dates together, I realized that I got picked. Out, I got kicked out of Caesar's Tahoe the same night that they did. No way. So what was going on is they thought I was with them and that I was, I mean, they thought I was with all those guys from MIT. Mm -hmm. I was pretty young too. And so I think that they just trapped me into that deal and they had the whole thing where they were, they were grabbing people that night and throwing them out. And I think that I just got caught up into that mess because I was winning and I had a lot of friends in. So what I, what I did and I realized what tipped them off is that I had a friend playing like three tables down in blackjack and I had my cards in my hand and I said, come down here. <laughs> and they thought you were making some kind of sign yeah i, I, I think how do i know i right. mean because i don't really know it this late but later on when i went through that process i thought that was pretty good it might be cork so we've talked about gold mining we've yeah. talked about selling strawberries we've yeah. talked about you know having no cash but having plenty of credit yeah talking about the world of blackjack how did it all come back because for people that most of the people who will listen to this are probably people who engage in, in radio with me some way. Uh -huh. Although, thankfully, through Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and my own personal website, um, there's so many other ways for people elsewhere to get this content. How did you wind up getting back down to Southern California from Tahoe after the, the, the blackjack experience and everything um, and, and really then expand and build Corky's Pest Control? Well, it's kind of weird. Uh, I was uh, dating... Uh, a woman by the name of Barbara Casino, and she was an attorney here in San Diego, and I was out of town mostly and just coming down to visit her. And I had a, an apartment in the San Francisco Bay Area, one in Los Angeles, and I had a house in Bonita where I had a couple of horses on a ranch down there. And so uh, we decided to get married. This was 84 now. We decided to get married. And so I By told the way, her, you kind of just glossed over that. I mean, yeah. you got a place in San Francisco, you got a place in L.A., you got a, a farm in, in San Diego County. Where, where did all this money come from? Because you went from being a $47,000 a year G, uh, GM <laughs> employee or whatever uh, to starting Corky's Pest Control to going on some sort of a, a year-long hiatus. And where did all this money just come from? Well, I, you know, I had, uh, I had to come back and I got some partnerships going that 
people wanted me to go back into the pest control business because they thought that I had a really good way to do it. And so then I started opening up offices, and I ended up opening like 50 offices in California, and I sold them as dealerships in the beginning. And then I started buying them back. And so I had 17 partnerships that I was doing stuff with, and I had a, a, a law firm that was overseeing a lot of those dealerships and doing stuff. And it was a mess. I mean, you know what? I, the problem with me with people is that I have a hard time judging people of who's the right people and who are not, you know. And so uh, I kept getting into trouble financial-wise because it was just the way it was. I mean, you know, I'd, people would sell me on the fact that they were going to go do this. And then, of course, they were off partying someplace <laughs> and not working. So, and I was always... I mean, yes, I always wanted to party, but I I could work 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours a day and still party, mm -hmm. you know, fall down in bed and get up and go do it again, <laughs> you know. But anyway, so I told Barbara that uh, I, I loved the Saratoga area, the San Francisco Bay area, and that I would be happy to move up there. Or if she really wanted to stay in San Diego, I'd move down here. And so what did she want to do? Because I already had a bunch of offices down here and was working. So I just went back and started buying out uh, the offices and taking them back over myself until I bought them all back. And so then, Barbara, as I recall, some. because cause when I met you, mm -hmm. um, you were married. Right. And um, Barbara was your wife, but she also was, maybe still is, an attorney um, and, and helped you, as I recall, you telling me the story, that you had all these businesses and you're talking about all these mm -hmm. partnerships. And what she helped you do as a lawyer and as a partner in some way is she helped you sort of consolidate and focus. Is that right? Well, I think that's that's pretty close to being right. You know, the difference is, is that I trust everybody and, a, and an, an attorney trusts nobody, you know. <laughs> so where's the middle ground for that, you know. And so she played a big part in the middle ground for that and uh, actually uh, – Put a lot of it together so that uh, even though I ran it and did all of it, she, you know, helped me figure out what I should be doing and what I shouldn't. And at, at about that time, or not very much longer, I got really heavily involved in the martial arts, which you know my grandmaster, Grandmaster Chun. And, uh, you know, he ran this martial arts studio called the House of Discipline. Where was this at and what year? Uh, San Marcos, and I think that it was when I got involved with him, I believe that it was 19... 87, 88, 89. So you don't have any martial arts experience of any kind? Not till then, no. And what, what got you going into? Well, I kept driving past. He was His office was on my street or his studios. So every time I would come to work or go home, I had to pass his sign, you know. And so one day I stopped in and said, hey, you know, uh, I'm thinking that I should come in here and take some lessons, but I don't know how to do that. And, you know. How old are you at this time? Uh, it must have been. 48, 49. Oh, my. Something like that. I don't think I realized that. I should have probably been able to do the math. So you're 48 or 49. You finally decide, you know what? I'm going to go into this yeah. this karate studio, this mm -hmm. taekwondo studio. Taekwondo. Mm -hmm. And what happened? So at 48, you started taking karate or yeah. taekwondo. Yeah, 22 years straight of private lessons, and he was the he had been the chief of bodyguards of the president of South Korea. So this guy was a phenomenal. He had a phenomenal history in martial arts. And so we started up a 
great friendship that's uh, lasted ever since. And uh, so I went through all the time. You know, it's, it's amazing. You, you actually, you though, didn't just start taking martial arts in, in your late 40s. You just mentioned 22 years of private lessons. So that it, was from there. Right. So, so until you're 70 years old. Well, that's about right. Let's see, 48, 58, 68, 70 yeah. years old. So yeah. by 70 years old, you're still, I remember, mm-hmm. and I remember meeting Grandmaster at many different events, but you were a black belt by that time. 22 years, of course. You, yeah, sure. And not only, but not only a black belt, a guy who goes into the Taekwondo studio, goes through the exercises, maybe breaks a board here and there. You, you actually really competed in, in Taekwondo, well, I, right? actually, more than that, yeah, but, you know, mainly mainly what I did is I was the guy that run the tournaments because I'm the old guy. Because, you don't forget, you know, the reality is, is you can really be precise at martial arts and you can do really, really well at it, but you can't, if you got a 22-year-old that's really good at it, I mean, you're not, you don't have the speed there, you know, I mean, you really don't. But you would I, put I'm on these events. 77 now, Right, so. but you would put on these events. Yeah, yeah, get the trophies, put it all together, and... and uh, Meet all of the grandmasters from all over the world. It was so terrific uh, to meet all of these gentlemen. It really was because these people, it's really hard to explain about martial arts, but martial arts, uh, is, it stabilizes you. It, it brings you down to, it grounds you to the place where you realize what life is all about. And it's not really a fighting thing. I mean, I know that everybody does. And not that you don't learn how to fight and and do all that stuff. But the reality is, is you learn your own self-discipline till you find out who you personally really are. And the world is a different place then. So you're not really looking to have martial arts so that you can go out and beat somebody's ass. You know, I mean, the fact is... Uh, since I joined martial arts, I mean, I've come close a lot of times to get in a fight, but you learn how to just look at somebody and let them know, mm-hmm. I'm not the guy you want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know? you think right now at 77 years old and out of practice and not training every day, you know, weekly like you mm-hmm. were, not having private lessons with a world-class grandmaster, you think at 77 years old right now you could still use it and defend yourself? Sure. You know, I'm slow i understand but if i get knocked down it's gonna take me a half hour to get up (laughs) (laughs) but instinctively could you you still have it you think well sure you just not you know the thing is is when you do martial arts for a really long time you realize that everybody else moves in slow motion i mean once you go in and you really get into training and you're training with somebody else who's hitting you and you're hitting them you know you do that over and over and over year after year after year and pretty soon when somebody is not a person with experience, uh, they move slowly compared to everybody else that you've ever been around. And so suddenly it's not hard to defend yourself because even at your old age, you're faster than that, mm. you know, because you're thinking differently. But, I mean, you can't defend yourself. I mean, I couldn't now. You know, if a person has a lot of experience in martial arts, you know, I got no chance against mm-hmm. these young people, you know. Mm-hmm. But I love watching them so much, and I love seeing them trained, and I love all of that stuff about martial arts. And I got a chance to go back and look at the history, and so I was one of the people who acted as kind of a historian and went back and studied the beginning of you know Taekwondo back in you know it was like fifteen hundred to three thousand BC, 
and go back and see why they were doing all the things that they were doing and why they were having all of these tournaments and competitive things. Why and were they? It, well, it was about learning how to build cities and the streets and bathrooms and all of that stuff. It was, in other words, they people would send their village people to these places uh, that was teaching how to protect your village, how to run a police area to protect your village and train all of the people to be the ones because there really weren't very many weapons back then. So because it was marauders that you had to protect your village from because you have a village and it's 125 people, you know how to protect that 125 people against, you know, 25 marauders that wants to come in and rob your village, you know. So you learn how to do those kind of things and build roads and build a house, you know, build a, uh, you know, a lean-to, you know, a place for you to go to sleep. So they were teaching all of those things. So they have 30 days, and during that 30 days, they also had games. And so the games was all the martial arts games and all of those different things that they did. So it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, thing that they did. And that was basically, most of that was in the Korean part, and mainly most of it was in the northern Korean part of Korea. See, it always blew me away that you... Uh, would jump so far into things. You, know, you, you, would, you, you were a black belt in Taekwondo. You not only, but I always saw you kind of take care of Grandmaster. I mean, you were, you were a guy that, the way I perceived it was, boy, Grandmaster, you know, made some a lot of money because he had a client like you. But you also received a lot from him. Um, I, I think back to some really amazing times, Cork, early in my broadcasting career here in San Diego when you and I first became close. And you and your wife at the time were so involved in the theater scene here in San Diego. And me, I'm kind of like you, a small-town kid. Um, I would never really have exposure to a lot of these sorts of cultural things. You put your name and your support behind all the, you know, the, the, um, the theater community of San Diego. And for many years, I got the chance to go to so many great shows, meet amazing actors and actresses, um, go to the after parties. I mean, we really spent many years enjoying the Broadway scene here in San Diego because not only did you love it, but you were always supportive of it. Very similar to the way you were with the martial arts. Well, yeah, I was. You know, and by the way, I missed fun. that, and I I wish you still were because there's a lot of great shows that have come to town that I've missed. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, but I and I still love. I mean, I mean, I'm the theater person. I just love the theater. There's no doubt about that, and I do go still. Uh, but I don't, you know, I wanted to have the best seats to sit in the middle, you know, fifth, sixth row, middle, that's where you want to sit when you go, where you want to sit when you go watch a play. And, uh, so I love doing that. What a nice memories that it was doing that, you know, oh, man, I know. now, you know, uh, they have to help me upstairs if I want to, oh, please, get <laughs> oh out I know here. that. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, the fact is, is that you go through the place like you and, and you're kind of like. And I don't really mean to say the beautiful people, but I do mean to say the beautiful people because the people in the theater and all of that stuff, those are the beautiful people. You know, it might a lot be makeup and stuff like that, but they go up and they, they, they pour their heart out to entertain you, and it's just such a wonderful thing. But, uh, you know, and at the end you want to go up and you want to praise them and do all of that kind of stuff. Uh, it's not the same, believe me, when you get really old, you know, and you're walking around and doing that stuff in the back as it is when they're, people are all pretty much your age that are back there, even younger a little bit. But, you know, I'm 77. You know, it's not the same going into the after parties. <laughs> <laughs> so, Cork, and I, you don't have to go too deep, of course. I mean, you can always tell me that you don't want to talk about something. But I want to just say that um, I can recall many years ago 
um, you were probably maybe 70, maybe 72. I don't remember the exact age, but I can recall you and I sitting at a bar having a glass of wine and you told me you were actually going to end your marriage. And I only knew you and your wife. I mean, I didn't know you as a, anything else. I didn't know you before that. Mm-hmm. And I said to you, I can remember saying this to you. I said, Cork, you're, you're 72. Let's just say that was the age. Are you sure you want to do this now? I, I, I almost had that younger guy sound to me like, <laughs> oh my God, Corky, you're so old. You're going to die soon. How could you want to get divorced now? And I remember your answer so vividly. You said, it's because of my age that I'm going to make this decision. Now, Cork, I don't mean to put you on the spot and talk about personal stuff. And if you want me to edit this out, I promise you I will. Um, but, but Cork, so many, we've learned, so many people can gain from your wisdom. And marriage is a hard thing. And I Oof. never, ever, ever thought, Cork, you know me, my wife, you saw us as younger people when we were just coming up, we were having kids, et cetera. I never in my life thought I'd find myself in the situation that I do find myself in now. Marriage is very tough. And you know what's even harder is I'm finding, so I want your thought on this, is that the divorce part of things makes me feel like failure. You know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you, you had financial hard times, but you never went into bankruptcy. Bankruptcy sounds like failure to me. Uh, divorce right now feels like failure to me. You've been married three times. What do you say? Is divorce failure? No, I think sometimes people just grow apart. I mean, you know, my Barbara is, is a wonderful, wonderful person. The problem is, and and this doesn't happen to everybody, but it happens to it happened to me in this last one, and that is that you kind of grow to a place to where the most fun you have is when you go out and when you go home and close the door and the rest of the world is shut out, uh, we weren't treating each other the same. Now, of course, I think that it was her that wasn't treating me the same. Maybe she feels the same way, but it was usually her on the way home that was telling me all the things that I did wrong while we were in the closed car. And by the time we got in the house, we weren't speaking to each other anymore. And, I decided that I didn't want to live the rest of my life that way. I tried to cure it if, as much as I could. And then I came to a place that I said, no, I would much rather be alone than live like this all the time. And then I, I tried to take a while to see if that could change. And I realized that it wouldn't change. And so I just decided that uh, uh, I'd rather be alone. And, you know, being alone has its assets and it has its liabilities, and there's no doubt about that. I've always been somebody, I mean, if I was out sleeping on the ground by myself uh, in Northern California uh, when I was gold mining, you got to imagine that, you know, uh, if I could, you know, put the reins down to a horse and put out the deal and lay down on the ground and go to sleep, but uh, being by myself wasn't a hardship. And so it didn't bother me to be alone, but it bothered other people to be alone. And so it was just, it's, it's a really hard thing because you're trying to be really, really nice to everybody, but uh, my being alone is not that difficult. So I would rather be alone than be unhappy. So, yeah, it's it, it just I'm I'm still um, I feel like I never wanted this. You know, my my parents were married, still are. My wife's parents were married, still are. All of our grandparents were married till they were till they died. And it wasn't until our generation, myself, my sister, my cousin, that there was ever divorce in our family. 
And so I don't know. I, it's like a brainwashing thing, you know. Like you, you, you say I do till death do us part, and that's what you're supposed to do. And then when you can't do it, or the situation doesn't allow for it, or the circumstances change, whatever, um, you're going back on that vow, if you will. That that's the part that I know I've I've emotionally struggled with. Well, here's the thing, and you know what you're. Could be right, but I doubt it. But I'll tell you why. <laughs> I hope you're right. <laughs> well, here's no, no. Here's the problem. You know, when I got old enough to look back, I realized that my parents were probably playing around when I was a young guy. They probably weren't faithful to each other. And uh, when I look around as I've got older, you know, I see that uh, a lot of the people that I know really aren't faithful to each other. And those that are faithful to each other, it seems like they don't like each other very well. <laughs> You know, maybe they put up with each other because both of them think that they need each other. But my reality is, is, hey, I'm sorry. I just want to be happy. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, go to bed angry at night. I don't want to, you know, do any of that stuff. I want to kind of like have a nice time. So if, if you don't want to have a good time, then I'm not the guy to be around. I, I want to have a nice time. So that's where I am. Well, I've always said, I mean, nobody loves life more <laughs> than you. Seriously. I mean, you, we, we've had so many great times. And, and have had so many wonderful experiences together. And I always, I, you know, you know how much I love you. And me, I, I, to me, well, you're a mentor and, a, like I said, father and brother. Figure. Well, I've always loved you. You know that. That's good. Cork, how did you, and I want to kind of get to the end of this, I, I, just back to radio listeners who will okay. be tuning in, who will have learned more about you today than just okay. the guy that says, call my phone number. <laughs> how did you become such a, a media slash advertising savvy business guy rather than just knowing the biology of bugs how did you become a smart advertiser well see i don't think i am i mean everybody says that i am but i don't think i am i tell you what i think i think that uh you have to have a little bit of humor and everything if you can i mean i remember when i was advertising up in oakland one time and i ran this this advertising piece like three thousand times and i don't remember what it cost me uh, seventy dollars a time or fifty dollars whatever it was but, you know, it was all about this beautiful truck that I had painted all up that was pulling up in front of this house. And so the video was the person pulled up in front of this house. And then this nice looking guy gets out of the cab and walks up to the door. And then he's talking to the woman at the door with a pad in his hand and, and saying yes and no and all of that stuff. And, you know, and then he goes back and gets in the truck and, you know, it was just, I mean, I never got any customers from the stupid commercial anyway. <laughs> and so I wasn't going to do any more at that point. That was over. Uh, and then one day I got to realize, well, hey, you know, if we do a commercial, why don't we make it more fun? And they said, well, how do you make pest control fun? I said, I don't know. But I, I had hired, I hired Glenn Erath, you know, and so he made it fun because he put together this jingle and we took it down, I was going to put it on the radio station. And I don't remember if you were the one that said don't do it, but I remember that Spencer was my guy at the station then. He's an account executive back yeah, then. Yeah, right. And so he said, because it was it was really hillbilly, corny type sound. Yeah, Corky's Pest Control and call yeah. this number. Call 1-800-901-1102. So, so and, and, and it sounded like, you know. <laughs> And uh, so it wasn't going to stand up next to the Beatles, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> 
However, uh, because you had the talk show, and so you weren't listening to other music that was going to wang, you know, on other music. Uh, so we thought, okay, well, I, I, I decided that I'd try it. And Spencer was telling me, oh, man, I'll tell you what, Corky, this is almost embarrassing. I, I said, okay, <laughs> we'll see. So, <laughs> so we put that on, and, of course, that jingle became really popular. A whole I mean, generation knows that jingle. Blew it away. I mean, I, you know, uh, I remember uh, people saying they could remember my number more than they could remember their own, you know. Right, of course. And uh, kids that remembered their number, people trying to teach their kids the number, uh, and they couldn't re teach them their own number, but their kids remembered mine. It was so. a great tune. I mean, yeah, everybody it knows it. So then, anyways, after that, we just kept doing it. And you probably don't know this, that I've done this now, but I have a whole television studio in the back of my office. Of course office I know. That I put together, and Glenn works for me full time and does Cork. these every day for Twitter and everything else. Corky, I see it every day. Every single day, Glenn does something funny. You yeah. know, you say, "How do I make Cork? Uh, how do I make Corky's Pest Control fun?" If you follow Corky's Pest Control on Twitter or Instagram, Glenn does a goofy, funny video every day where he yeah. writes a new song, he he plays guitar, he dresses up in costume, he finds a way to make pest control entertaining. Yeah. To hopefully get people to click on whatever link you might be sending out or get them to your website or, of course, to call the phone number. Well, some of it's not that funny. I mean, I tell you, you know, you, you can't be funny all the time. But uh, enough of them is funny enough for us that we're having fun. Mm -hmm. And so I guess if we have fun, and if, if everybody looks at it, and we got to do the cartoons for a while. You know, I, ha I have the second largest collection of insect cartoons in the world. Wh who's got the first? Uh, I don't know. Somebody in... <laughs> Somebody like and, that you know that you've got the second. Well, because uh, we looked it up to see, and the person that said they had the most had more than us. <laughs> so we said, okay, we're the second then, so we bought it down. But but uh, we got some really funny cartoons, uh, and... Uh, you have done... You've tried everything. No fear of failure whatsoever. Always willing to take a risk, whether it's investing money into somebody doing cartoons for a pest control company, or... Hey, listen, I remember when you did this thing in the malls where you built these kiosks, and it wasn't long. You made a quick decision. Hey, I'm going to try this. It's not working. Shut I'm it down. Out. Yeah, I mean, I loved watching you do that. Well, boy, I, th I thought that was going to work. I thought it was going to really go to – I thought, wow, that's great. I'll have 50 offices again. You know, we'll put them in these malls all over. Man, that sure didn't work. I, that was terrible. <laughs> the, the cartoons, the reason why I did it longer than I probably should have is because – I inspected every cartoon. I mean, we actually hired, you know, the people to do the cartoons. They worked for me when they were doing the cartoons. So I own them. You know, they don't belong to anybody else. And and I was looking, I was overlooking damn near every one. Well, weekly I was overlooking them anyway. I wasn't, sometimes they would put one up and I'd say, what'd you put that up for? That's not funny. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but, but yeah, I looked at every single one of them and actually, uh, Changed a bunch of them to say different things and stuff. I mean, well, I really you were got interested into it. in cartoons because the name Corky. Yeah, my name Corky came from a cartoon called Gasoline Alley back in uh, the 30s and 40s. Uh, and so there was a f character in there called Corky, and my grandmother named me Corky from that character. It's a nickname. But nobody's ever called me anything except Corky my whole life. You know, <laughs> I don't know, so. unless sometimes I look at your horse racing license and I see the real name on it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Harry. It's with Harry, I'll tell you. <laughs> the funny thing is, though, is it used to be because when you had a 
crazy driver on the road, they'd say, where are you going, Harry? You know? <laughs> so I just hated that name. <laughs> but nobody ever called it to me anyway. But my grandmother did me a great favor, and she'll never know, you know, because she died while I was still young. So uh, uh, I was still this little punk kid, Corky, to her, you know. So well, now I'm a punk adult, Corky. Right now, so. <laughs> Cork, real quick, before we finish up, a um, lot of family. I feel like maybe later in your life, check me on this, that you've become closer, and I hate to sound, I'm just going to say it, much more uh, interested and engaged in your family. Now, I don't mean to make that sound like a no, criticism, because no, no. I used to True. say to you a lot of the times, I'd say, Cork, what about your granddaughter? What? And it just, you were here, they were elsewhere, you always seem to be very financially supportive of a lot of people. Um, what about your family? It seems like well, I was financially to supported to them. I was financially into them, but I wasn't really close to them personally like I am now. Uh, but yeah, it's true. I have great four great grandkids now, and uh, so truthfully, I know them better than I knew my grandkids, which was unfortunate. You know, I wish I would have done that differently. But you know, when you work. Uh, you know, when you're in business like this, you work seven days a week, 12 hours a day. It's just what you do. And if you're not working, you're still thinking about it. Mm -hmm. You know, otherwise you're probably not going to be successful. So, yeah. And I took, but I took a lot of vacations and trips. You know, I mean, I've driven, you know, four times over the Andes Mountains in a four-wheel drive vehicle and in South America. And I've driven across Africa twice by myself. Well, had another car behind me, but, uh, and, you know, I've, done amazing things all through Europe and everything. I mean, I've really had a, I've had a great life. I mean, I've had a hell of a lot of fun, man. <laughs> a lot I'm more to go stop. yet. Yeah, a lot course. more to I'm, go. I'm not stopping. Yet. Yeah. That's the key. That not stopping. I love that cork. That's a great place for us to stop, even okay. though we're not stopping. <laughs> Thank you very much. This has been great. Isn't this fun? Yeah. See, fun. this is cork. This is the weirdest part about this podcasting versus radio. You know, every 12, 14 minutes, I got to take a commercial break. People mostly come because they want sports and sports-related content. Um, this gives me a chance to do exactly what we did 15 years ago when we met, or more than that at this yep. time, which was that first night when I started to just ask you about your business and your background and how you got to where you were and your successes and your failures, all those things that I was passionately interested that night. Podcasting didn't exist back then. No. You know, and, and now instead of having to just be married to sports or San Diego or Southern California, this, this allows me to jump into all kinds of different stuff. Really, really has. Well, where do you think we'll be in five years? <laughs> Good question. Yeah. I could keep going with Corky. I could keep telling stories. There's a lot of other stuff that we never even, we never even touched. But if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Father's Day, and I know we talked about this during the podcast, but people, or at least I think we did, I mean, we may have turned the equipment off and, and, uh, and, and gone on with lunch, but the thing is, is that Corky's employees will get to hear that. Corky's grandchildren and great-grandchildren will get a chance to hear that, and Corky's very distinctive voice and storytelling story style will, will always be uh, available to people who love him and care for him. You know, I, I don't know how many of you ever do this or not, but you know, I have a cousin and I'm getting kind of, um, I'm sort of preparing my mind for this. In 2008, he was tragically struck and killed while riding a bike. He and I were training for the Challenge Athletes Foundation Million Dollar Challenge as we were going to ride our bikes from San Francisco to San Diego. And 
we were training and he was in Arizona and I was in San Diego and he went out early Saturday morning and he went out for a bike ride and he just never came back. And what happened was there was a, an older gentleman who was driving on a single lane road and he didn't give my cousin his ample space. And the guy had a bunch of, um, uh, Adder- no, no, no. Um, what's that sleeping pill drug that, uh, everybody takes. And anyway, he had it in his system and, um, he hit and killed my cousin. And, in about a week or so from now, or two weeks from now, it's going to be his 50th birthday. So when I think back to my Father's Day podcast and this desire to interview Dick Emberg, and I mentioned a friend of ours who, who wrote a book uh, that he wanted something for his kids to, long after he was gone, these kinds of interviews with the likes of a Corky Miser, they're, they're personal for me, and I, and I hope you got something out of the Corky interview that I know I got so much out of, of being able to tell his stories and remembering all the stories. He was really impressed with how many of them I remembered. So that's this week's episode. And um, I am really thankful that all you guys are listening because I have been getting texts and emails from people who have heard these podcasts and they are impacting uh, people. I know they're impacting me. I can tell you that. I mean, I had a friend of mine from Pittsburgh tell me, he said, I can hear you receiving the business coaching from all of these people. And, um, and I certainly am. I'm certainly learning every week. So again, thank you to my friends at Callaway Golf, CallawayGolf.com. Thank you to my friends from the Brigantine family of restaurants. And thank you to my friends at Gorilla Movers. And as always, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week on the Scott Kaplan Solo Podcast. Another great guest that was interviewed by Scott on the weekly solo podcast that on every Tuesday drops. Keep it locked and make sure after you listen, share the latest volume, tune in to the next edition.